that's all, that's all I've got. So welcome Pastor Scott as he comes up to preach a good word. Go, Josh. Love it. Isn't it fun? All these great people that we have in our church that are happy to step up and play a part in this. It's just exciting. So anyway, welcome this morning. Uh, always good to have you with us. There's faces that we've not seen in a while. Good to have you back. Good to have guests here. Uh, good to have all the familiar faces. Oh, Samuel's here. We love you. <laughs> um, so yeah, welcome. I, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to, I don't know how I'll be today. I had a wedding this weekend. It was a lot of fun, but it left me a little tired. And so I went to bed last night at like 9.15. And I know some of you in the church are going, that's really late. Uh, <laughs> that was really early for me. Uh, so I got lots of sleep, but so, so I don't know if that makes me more energetic or less energetic. We'll see. So yeah, you know, we just want to hold the vision before us of why we're doing what we're doing. So we're in this series called Sent. Why are we doing this? We're trying to recover as a church uh, the mission heart of God and the vision of the church as sent people. Um, we're in this season where we're trying to reestablish who we are as a church and what our mission is in the city where God has placed us. And so one of the best ways to do that is to jump back into Acts and, and look again at what was the original heartbeat of the early church and how do we recover that and then shape that to help inform the mission that we have in our city. So we're working our way through Acts. We're in Acts 18 right now. So we're partway through Paul's second missionary journey. Um, we're going to wrap up that journey today. And you start a little bit of the third journey. Um, so we're, we're going to look at this tail end of his journey when Paul lands in Corinth. Um, we're going to look at that. And, I, and, and then I'm going to share kind of like five patterns or principles that we see in this chapter about how Paul goes about doing ministry um, in this city. And so... I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 18. You can follow along on the screen in your Bible. And there's also a map on the table of Paul's second missionary journey, just so you can be reminded where he's come so far and where we're going. So the place names jump up there in orange, which will help you just keep track of, uh, of where we are. So this is Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So they're moving because of persecution. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went very far next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in this city 
So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Let me just pause. Vital Church were here for about a year and a half. Interesting. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settled matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Notice their names have been flipped. Um, he had his hair cut off at Centuria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem. So he's back at home, greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, the church that sent him. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, and the next chapter is going to tell us, to Corinth, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So here we have them, the, the, the church arriving in Corinth, kind of the capital of this area. We know if you look at archaeological writings and historical writings, Corinth, I'm trying to think of a polite word for what Corinth was. Corinth wasn't a very nice place in many senses. It was a rich port, it was a wealthy city, and it was known for all of its sensuality and sexuality. It was a place of just pure sin and indulgence. And you can jump in and read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to get a good idea of the issues they're dealing with. Um, someone sleeping with his mother-in-law, uh, family members are hooking up. There's, there's race issues, there's class issues, the rich people are excluding the poor people. They're trying to figure out the, the, the relationship between meat sacrificed to idols and idolatry and meeting as the church. There's division. There's, there's the churches fighting amongst each other. It's just a messy place, right? Um, and so this is where Paul is landing. This is where the church has been established. I mean, it gives me some hope. If Paul spends a year and a half year ministering to these people and then his letters are dealing with such terrible stuff, it's like, okay, if Paul has that going on in his churches, then, then we're doing all right, right? <laughs> um, 
So this is, it, it's, it, it's a crazy city. So here Paul is in Corinth. Um, the, the plug, Jessica, is going to take us through nine weeks looking at 1 Corinthians. She's going to be looking at the content and asking the question, like, what does it teach us about how to be an effective church? And we're going to look at the issues and the debates in 1 Corinthians and what that means for us. Um, so you can, we'll talk more about this in the next couple of weeks, but fill in a connect card, say you're interested. If you're like, that, it's going to be after church. If you're looking at it going, that sounds interesting. Is there going to be childcare? Um, just fill in a little card that says, hey, I'm interested in this, but I could only do it if there's childcare. Because if no one needs childcare, then we're not going to organize childcare. But if we end up needing childcare for that, we will work out what we can do. So this is them in Corinth, this crazy, messy place doing ministry. And, and through this, this passage, there's, there's kind of like, there were five things that conveniently all start with a T. Um, from the text, right? This is not me trying to be clever. Um, they all start with a T. And I was like, these are interesting principles as we look at our church and what it means to live out this mission in the city that we're in. So the first pattern that I want to comment on is just this word tent making. Um, this is a word that actually in, in mission and in the church, it's become like Christian jargon for a particular way of doing ministry. So I don't know if you've heard this, but you've got like pastors that are full-time that are paid by the church and do their job. And then you've got tent makers who have like a job while they do ministry, right? And there's a lot of good in breaking it down that way and thinking out of the box. Like there are more ways to do ministry than just being paid to do ministry. Um, but I think we miss something of what's going on in this passage that I just think is beautiful. We look at Paul in, in Acts, we look at him in scripture as this super saint. Like Paul is the super missionary. He's this really uniquely called and gifted guy who just goes out there and shares the gospel constantly and has all of this fruit. And we're like, I can't do that. I think there's this really great moment and this tent-making moment where Paul arrives here. He connects with these two people whose, uh, whose career and vocation is tent-making. And because he's a tent-maker like them, he begins to hang out with them and work with them. Paul's not a guy that is afraid to get his hands dirty. He's not a guy that's afraid of a hard day's work. Um, and that ethic is what translates into the way he does ministry, Right? Um, so he gets here, let's make some money, let's build a relationship. You don't build a relationship by just sitting down over coffee and debating scripture for weeks and weeks. You do life together. So let's work together, let's eat together, let's live together. Um, I, I wrote down, you know, we see Jesus, uh, we see Paul as this Jewish rabbi that turned into Jesus rebel. But we, we forget he had these other skills that he relied on uh, and perhaps relying on them more than we realize. Because what is the book of Acts? It's a summary of some of the highlights of the ministry that Paul did. It wouldn't be a very exciting book if it just talked about all the tents that Paul made and all of the times he just sat with people doing his normal everyday work because they're trying to drive the point forward that when the spirit fell, it drove them into ministry. Um, I wonder, tent making sounds like an interesting job. I wonder how much this was a place of revelation. You know, you know, like there's, there's people here, you're gardeners, you love being out, like digging, weeding, whatever, and in that place of just working kind of mindlessly on the garden, you, you start thinking about God, you start thinking about weeding out the sins in your own life. You know those, those just like right now we're laying florins, I'm just in there, I'm hammering, and as I'm doing it, I'm just thinking. But I wonder how much Paul as a tent maker, as he's sitting there making tents, is reliving the Old Testament where there's all these instructions about making this tent where God was going to dwell. 
I imagine that in that job, as they sit there and they're doing it, he's thinking about the gifts that were poured out on special people to be able to do this work. I wonder if he's thinking about why would God choose like a fabric building to be the place that he would meet? What is it about the Holy of Holies being ripped? Like, I, I imagine this place of working was a place of revelation. And, and why do I draw this up at, at the beginning? Like tent making is a principle. Like most people are called not to be professional ministers, but to do a normal job. And that normal job, it's not like your normal job is where you do your normal job stuff and then your, your church engagement is where you do your spiritual stuff. Your normal job is a place of revelation. And God wants to use your normal job uh, to meet you and, and to minister to you and to minister through you. So, so I wrote here, the gospel does not spread through professional ministers, but everyday missionaries. Um, and this is what Paul's showing. Like it, in Acts, we see these guys doing life as normal. They're working, they're hanging out, they're eating meals together, and through that process are used by God to rescue people from darkness to light. And, and here's the thing. You are all everyday missionaries. Like you're called to be on mission, doing what God has called you to do in the place where you are. Pastors and professional ministries fail when we act like a professional minister and not an everyday missionary. And it's very easy to, to separate those two things out. If I come here and this is the extent of my ministry, is, is meeting with Christians, standing in front and preaching the gospel, I'm failing as a pastor. My job is to be like you, an everyday minister who's out there, meeting neighbors, spending time with friends, building relationships so that God can work through us. It's not my job to share the gospel on behalf of the church. It's our job to do this every day. Everyday missionaries are people who are conscious of how each relational interaction is an opportunity to lead someone closer to Jesus. That's how we're supposed to live. So I want to say the simple statement, God wants to use you. And statements like this are funny because you're like, yeah, I know this. But do you really believe God wants to use you? Do you really believe that God can use you? God wants to use you. You might be old and retired and lacking in energy. Your body is aching. You're bedridden and going, how can God possibly want to use me? God wants to use you. You can be here and you're young. Uh, you're still in school. You're figuring this stuff out. God wants to use you. Um, you may be looking at your life going, I have no calling to ministry whatsoever. I'm terrified of talking to people. God wants to use you. Um, there isn't a single person in this room that God does not want to use in the work of his gospel. The question is, are you open to allowing him to use you in the everyday moments of your life? God wants to use you as a full-time mom, as an electrician, as a retiree, a teacher, an administrator, just any person that is his, he plans to use for the work of his kingdom. So that's number one, tent making. It's part of the process that God uses our normal, everyday jobs in life to minister the gospel. The second pattern we see in here is, is I put the word teams. This is something, that this particular passage around Corinth uh, I find it beautifully overwhelming because all of a sudden they start listing all of these groups of people that are involved in the work of the gospel. And if you're attentive, you realize in this chapter, they're kind of all ending up in different places. 
So like when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, why are they in Macedonia? Paul left early and they were left behind. They were doing ministry in Macedonia while Paul's arriving in Corinth doing the work in Corinth. What does he do when he gets there? He hooks up with Priscilla and Aquila and begins ministering with them. Uh, when Silas and Timothy arrive, he, he's like, okay, we're, we're now ready to move forward. So he stops doing the, the predominant tent making stuff and devotes himself exclusively uh, to preaching and teaching. So this is a point where, where things really begin to intersect. God is a work through multiple people in multiple places in multiple ways. And I think it's so easy for us to forget about this, especially when we get turned inward as a church and we begin to think about just me and my family, me and my faith, me and our church. God is at work in multiple people in multiple ways in multiple places, and that includes in our city. He's at work in multiple churches. He's at work in multiple workplaces. Right now, there are Christians meeting in countries all over the world that are gathering to be refueled, to get out there and do the work in ministry. And I think we forget, we get so myopic that we forget that God is working all over the place. That, that right now we're here and we're gathered, but there are people from our church that are somewhere out there that didn't come today that are in conversation with people about Jesus. But because we're here, we're so focused on this. I find this like really faith building. Like God is at work in multiple people. It's not all on me. It's not all on our church. It's on all of the churches together, coming together. So all over our city and churches right now, churches are gathered, they're learning. Right now there are people in churches hearing messages and being inspired to get out there. Like all over our city, people are preparing to share the gospel. Um, if you look at the passage though, you look at the people that we become aware of just in this passage. So you've got Paul who's ministering in Corinth, you've got Silas and Timothy that have just come from Macedonia, now they're here, you've got Priscilla and Aquila, so they're all going to end up in Ephesus and Paul is going to leave Priscilla and Aquila behind as he heads back to Jerusalem. You've got Apollos who meets Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and then he heads back to Corinth. We forget at this point in the story that Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas. So they're somewhere else in, in, in Asia. They're ministering and building up teams and sending them out. Then you've got the church in Jerusalem that we've almost entirely forgotten about at this point in the book of Acts, who are there in Jerusalem ministering and dispersing. You can go further back, the Ethiopian eunuch, where's he and what's he doing? He's back in his hometown ministering. So many people scattered all over the place doing the work in ministry. What we tend to do as the church is we gather on a Sunday and it's like, oh yeah, here's all my people. Or you gather for a small group and it's like, I'm with my people. And you forget that when you're at your job tomorrow morning, every person from our church is out there doing something in our city. The question is, are you just doing your thing or are your eyes open to leverage every relational interaction to be an opportunity to share the gospel? So my encouragement would be tomorrow, if you're out doing your gardening, if you're bookkeeping, if you're fixing electricity, if you're doing accounts somewhere, whatever it is you're doing, um, be thinking about the other people in the church that are also in the same place that God wants to use to be ministering. Think about the other Christians on the other end of the world that while you're doing your work are actively sharing the gospel and ask God to move in and through them. 
The third pattern that we see, that we see all the way through the book of Acts, trouble, trial, persecution, and the role that it plays in driving the work of God forward. Um, So this point, when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said said to them, your blood be on your own hands, I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. If we live in a pattern of life is hard, People are doing things I don't like. Let's criticize it and let's hold up inside and, and, and just be against it all. We miss out on the ways that God uses things like COVID. I mean, stuck inside to focus us on our family and getting our family's faith good. It, it causes us to focus as a church on strengthening inside. It causes us to focus on specific relationships and different ways of engaging the people around about us. Trouble and hardship catalyzes the gospel. It's key all through the New Testament. I think the absence of any sort of real persecution of Christians in this country is what makes us as a church complacent. We, we rely on gathering on a Sunday in, in a large group to fuel our faith and then we go into life and kind of do our normal thing. And churches where there's persecution, they can't gather like this. So they desperately snatch the moments when they can be uh, together in a home and then the only way they can share the gospel, they can't do it. We're going to do a big city cleanup and we're going to put t-shirts that we're from our church and get out there in the community. We're going to put on a VBS and minister to the kids. The only way you can share the gospel is quietly with the person that you're working next to. Uh, sharing the gospel discreetly, bringing them to faith, and then secretly bringing them into the fold. But, but when we live in this place absent of the trouble and the persecution, we get very complacent. You know, I've been reflecting, I've been hearing this stat as I meet with pastors all around the city. Most pastors are saying, coming out of COVID, their church attendance is 40% of what it was before COVID. 40% of what it was before all of the shutdowns and and things moving online. And and I've got lots of thoughts about how and why. Um, People are going, how do we get all those people back? And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure of that 60%, a high portion of them, were probably the people that were in the church that weren't really committed to the church. There's a lot of people who just go through the motions of going to church every Sunday because it's what you've always done. All of a sudden, we took away the ability to gather as the church, and they said, well, I don't need this. It's kind of nice sleeping in in the morning. Uh, so some of those people are, are those people who weren't really living their faith, who have used this, or this opportunity has allowed them to take a step back and become even more complacent and perhaps show their true colors as a Christian. Um, On the flip side, you've got a bunch of change-resistant Christians who just keep meeting anyway. They're not necessarily any better because it's just, this is what I do. I don't want anything to change, so I'm just going to keep meeting as I always have. And so some of the people that gather are also people that that are in a boat that isn't so great. Um, I wonder, though, in all of that, how much uh, or, or how sad it is um, when, when you think about what's happened during COVID as churches are gathering, people failing to come back, how quickly personal comfort has triumphed the sacrifice of gathering as believers. You know, it's much easier just to stay in bed, stick on the TV and watch it. Now, there are some people, that's the only option they have because they're stuck at home, they're bedridden, they can't get out, they're immunocompromised. Um, and, and so it's amazing that there are resources that, that allow them to participate. But isn't it amazing? It's like, ah, oh, I don't really want to go today. I think it would be nicer to go to the beach today. And we sacrifice. We're not willing to make the sacrifice that's required to gather 
in order just to, to pursue personal comfort. I think that's a scathing uh, indictment of the church in the West, that we would often choose personal comfort over the sacrifices of the gospel. Um, let me just add the little gracious caveat on that. I'm not the kind of pastor that's like, you have to be here every week or you are sinning, right? <laughs> Jesus cares about rest and enjoyment, and sometimes the best, most spiritual thing you can do is sleep in in the morning and not come to church grumpy, right? <laughs> sometimes the best thing you can do is take your family to the beach and enjoy his creation together. But that should be the occasional blessing rather than the regular practice, right? <laughs> There's this moment in this part of the passage, you know, in the face of this persecution that he's experiencing, real persecution, he receives this vision that strengthens and reassures him. So God is talking to him, you know, one night God says to Paul, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent, I am with you, no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So one of the things here, like, this, this is not a, a universal principle for all people in all time. This is very specific to Paul in this city because in all the other cities, <laughs> people hurt him. So this is a specific revelation in this city that, that God is going to protect him. Keep, keep being bold. Like, no one's going to attack you. I think we miss that, that there, this is said, and then Paul's dragged before Gallio, this, this proconsul, they expect him to do what they're doing to all the Jews and Christians all around the place where they're persecuting them, beating them up, murdering them. And Gallio is like, hey, you guys, like, enough. I'm not interested. Doesn't say he's a believer, but God had a person in that city he could use, whether he was a believer or not. This moment, though, reminds me, when, it, when I read it and I think about it, it reminds me of the revelation to Elijah and 1 Kings 19, which I think is something we need to be reminded. In 1 Kings 19, you've got this moment where Elijah has been up Mount Carmel and had this confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Uh, fire has fallen on his altar. Uh, a bunch of the prophets of Baal, they've had them struck down and they're dying. And then all of a sudden, Ahab's wife Jezebel is like, Elijah, I promise you I'm coming for you and you're going down. And Elijah runs off and has this moment <laughs> where it's like a woe me moment and he's talking to God I've been so zealous for you Lord the Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars put your prophets to death with the sword I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too and God gives him this revelation where he's not in the fire and he's still small voice Elijah what are you doing here he says the same thing and God's response I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed them. And I think when we're in this, this state, this part of Oregon, there's many ways you can look at Portland and you can look at Corinth. And as the church, we go, Portland's a lot like Corinth. There's, there, there's wealth, there's riches, there's division, there's racial tensions, there's idolatries, there's sexual brokenness, just like there was there. And we can look at the church, as the church, and we go, God, it's terrible. This, this state is going to pot, our city's a mess, and we're the only ones. God, they're trying to take me out. They're removing my freedoms. God, we're the only ones. How is this state ever going to survive? I went online and I looked. The population of the Portland metro area, 
I went on and I looked at the percentage of people in the 2006 census who identified as Protestant Christians. This is not talking about any of the others, Roman Catholics and, and others beyond that. It said 17.4%. So that means just a rough estimate there are half a million Christians in our city. And we're like, oh, we're the only ones. There are half a million people in the city that God is trying to use to reach the city round about us. I think it's important that we remember we're not the only ones. And that's the ones that on a census are identifying as a Protestant Christian. That's not counting all the other people that don't identify really as Christian because they don't like church or people that are out there trying to do the under the radar form of sharing the gospel. There's half a million Christians in our state. What would happen if we banded together to share the gospel with the people around about us? What if rather than leaving 499,000 people out there to do the work, we actually stepped up and did some of that work? What would happen in our city? I think I wrote down here, we need to lift our eyes to the bigger picture of what God is doing in our city. It's easy to get discouraged when we just look at us and the, the journey that Alliance Bible Church has been on. It's easy to look at it and feel like, oh, we've, we've struggled, we've struggled to get in the community, numbers have dwindled. It's important that we lift our eyes up. It's why I spend a lot of time in my month meeting with pastors and leaders and ministries around the city, going to citywide prayer events, having other praying people come into our church to gather. It's why we bring in other pastors from the city, other worship leaders from the city, to, to keep our eyes lifted up, to know that God is working. You know, we have people, we just had John Tyson come in from New York and he spoke here and, and, and spending time with him, he's going, I've been in, like, he speaks all over the world. He speaks all over the U.S. He's like, I've been in cities all over the U.S. I have never seen a united movement of the church like I see in Portland. The work that Kevin Palau has done, the Luis Palau Association, people, people like Renee with the prayer ministry, the work that pastors have done, there's some big businessmen that have thrown lots of money into getting pastors together to build relationships. Portland is leading the way in the U.S. and how to bring pastors together united, and we have no idea. Um, doesn't mean there's no division, doesn't mean there's no tension between pastors, doesn't mean there's churches out there that don't want to participate in that. But we have to lift our eyes up to see that God is moving in our city. Every day in Portland, people are coming to faith. So we've got to learn how do we as a church partner with that so that it's not the other churches bringing people to faith, but that we are part of that process. We have a part we need to do. Fourth pattern, teaching, teaching the truth. Simple, I'm not going to belabor this point. Um, he began speaking, this is Apollos, began speaking boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When you look at the New Testament, there's, there's two ways this teaching took form. It began primarily with showing the people that Jesus is the Messiah, going to the non-Christian world, the Jews, the God-fearing Gentiles, and proving that Jesus was the Messiah. It's our primary calling as Christians is to take that message to the world. The second level of teaching that they engaged in was looking at the church and teaching them, the Christians within the doors of the church, how to live rightly as Christians in a way that would open the doors of the gospel to the world. We tend to get it wrong. So we talk about Jesus inside the church and then we talk about right living to the people outside the church, right? We're supposed to be in here uh, 
teaching each other how to live rightly and out there showing the need for Jesus, showing who he is. It's about correcting the wrong thinking. Uh, within our church, we have to look at ourselves. There's a lot of people that have walked with Jesus for a long time. There is wrong thinking in our theology and our practice that needs correcting. So the question becomes, where is your understanding inadequate? If Priscilla and Aquila were to listen to you share the gospel, and they said, hey, I'm going to bring Samuel over to her house, and we're going to sit down with Samuel, and we're going to give him a fuller version of the gospel and correct the inadequate thinking. Where is the inadequate thinking in your way of pursuing the gospel? And the sad thing is, often you're not aware of it. You need the people around about you to help you point it out. <laughs> um, what is some of the inadequate thinking that you might be walking in? That God doesn't need you that God can do his work without you, that somehow you're disqualified, you're inadequate, you don't have the skills, the knowledge, the ability to be used by God. For some of you, it's, I'm too young, I'm just starting out my faith, I don't know enough, um, so God can't use me yet. For some people, it's, I'm retired. You're, you're wrong thinking maybe, I'm retired, I've served my time. It's time for the young people to take over right? They're the ones going to lead the church forward. I just get to sit back. I've done my part. Um, for some of us, it's, you know, I don't know any non-Christians. I don't have non-Christian friends, therefore I don't need to do this. My, some of us, it's, you know, my job is in the church. My gifts are to build up Christians, right? There are lots of ways that are thinking it's wrong, and a big part of the inadequacy, you know, we know the right things a lot of the time, but we're not doing them. So part of the inadequacy, I think Priscilla and Aquila would be sitting down with each of us going, I hear you say the right things, but get out there and start acting on it. Um, so where are we inadequate in our understanding? And are we teachable enough to have those corrected? And are we willing to move out there and do things differently? There is this uh, phrase that was coined probably 10 years ago, uh, maybe seven years ago, uh, moral therapeutic deism. Here's a phrase for you. Moral therapeutic deism. This is someone's critique or analysis of the way that the church functions in the West. So what's deism? Deism is the belief that God exists, but he's just kind of out there and leaves the world to do its own sort of thing. So he's, he's, he's aware and he's involved, but he's not intricately moving in our lives. So he, he started on, he's just stepping back and kind of monitoring. Morality, the moral part, it, Christianity is about just living the right kind of way. So if we can just get our actions in line with what the Bible says, that's, that's it. Just, but, but more than that, it's, it, or, or, I would say more than that, but it's actually less than that. Just be a good and nice person, right? Do good, don't hurt nobody. That's all it means to be a Christian. And then the therapeutic part, it's about feel good. So what does this look like? God's there, but all I need to do is be a good person, feel good, and be happy, and that's Christianity. And this is the inadequate thinking of most of the Western church. So that looks like I'm retired now. God, like I've served my time. I just get to sit back, kind of enjoy my retirement, uh, let the next generation carry it forward. This looks like I'm young. I, I know these desires I have aren't quite in line with Scripture, but, but this would make me happy, so I just get to do it, right? As long as I believe God's there, as long as I'm not hurting someone, I'm free to do whatever makes me happy. Uh, that is not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is give yourself fully to Jesus, submit your life to Him, 
Allow him to call the shots, dictate what your life should look like, how you should be spending your time, who you should be investing in. Um, we, we need to be reminded that we're a church on mission. Gathering as Christians is not enough. God is intimately involved in our lives. He's not out there just kind of watching and letting us do our own thing. He's here. He's communicating. He's guiding. He's putting barriers up to redirect us. He's uh, orchestrating events. We need to be reminded that he has standards that he wants us to live up to. And here's where I just get so frustrated. We are so loud about the standards that people out there need to live up to. And yet we don't share the gospel. We're not doing the things that God wants from us. We're watching our neighbor die without Jesus and we're quite happy because my life is nice. We get so vocal about people out there living right and we get so self-righteous. I believe the right thing. I go to church. I know the Bible inside out. I pray and yet we're not sharing the gospel. Our families are falling apart. Our kids don't walk with Jesus. We're broken about it, but we're not changing. What we want to do is, my kids aren't walking with Jesus. I need to share the gospel with them. You sit them down, you're like, Jesus wants you. What you need to do if your kids are not walking with Jesus, you need to fix your life. When your kids see your life change, when they see you go from conflict averse to being willing to walk in godly assertiveness, when they see you walk away from passive aggressiveness to engage in conflict in a healthy way, where they see you take your brokenness and your anger issues and become a person of peace, your kids will look at you and go, what's going on in your life? When you go from being opinionated and dogmatic to someone who listens and loves, your kids are going to go, mom, dad, what's happened? Well, actually, I have the same anger issues you have. So if you were able to switch from a person of anger to a person of peace, then maybe if I have what you have, I can deal with my anger issues too. So what, what your kids need is not your words telling them what to do, but your transformed life, showing them a different way to live. And lastly, the therapeutic part, you know, following his way is costly and painful. Jesus didn't die to give us a happy life. He didn't die to give us a comfortable existence. He didn't die to make us wealthy. He died to redeem us and bring us to him so that we can be his instruments in the world. Generosity towards others means sacrificing the things that you want for yourself. Raising godly kids means not taking the promotion that you desperately want so that you can be home and be invested in their life. Sacrifice means, yes, you're retired and yes, your time is yours. Be out there, pick up a hobby, meet people, invest in people, go on a mission trip. It costs, it can be painful, it can be uncomfortable, but that's the way that we have to walk. The last pattern in here is entrusting. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him. He was good, he was zealous, he was saying some things, he was a little misunderstood. Priscilla and Aquila sit him down, they correct his wrong thinking, they say, I wanna go to Corinth. Paul's leaving Corinth, they need someone, so I'm gonna go to Corinth. Uh, and what did they do? They encouraged him. They entrusted him with the gospel. And it says, when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. It reminds me of Paul when he's writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. What's he say? Pass on to reliable men what's been entrusted to you. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. Are you a reliable person with the gospel? 
Are you working on becoming a reliable person with the gospel? And if yes, are you currently passing on this stuff to reliable people, or are you leaving that for me to do? <laughs> I can't do it all. Um, we have to be reliable people that are passing it on. So are your eyes open? Who are the zealous people coming in through our doors? Who are the zealous people that you're meeting who are a little misguided, who are just going to fix it themselves as they go through their life? No, you're going to invite them into your house. You're going to sit them down. You're going to build a relationship with them. And, and, and through that process, you're going to help them correct the wrong thinking so that they can be more effective at sharing the gospel. So to recap, let's, what were the five patterns? Seeing tent making as essential. You're, you're an everyday missionary. Every part of your life, every relational interaction is an opportunity to point people closer to Jesus. See the value of teams, different teams, doing ministry in different ways, in different locations. Are you doing it yourself? Or are you part of a team that's working out there? Seeking God in the face of trouble. How are we different from the world? When trouble hits, when life goes bad, when the things out there are not the way you want, do you just grumble like everyone else? Or do you have confidence in a God that is greater? So when people are going, the, the, Portland's going to pot, you go, I have confidence that God is at work. Imagine what would happen if you said that the next time someone started bashing the world around us. You're like, oh, I can see your point, but I know that God is redeeming the world that we're in, and I'm part of that journey. It's like, whoa, I want some of what you're smoking. <laughs> it's Portland. Uh, fourth, seek to be teachable and teach others. Be open. Be aware. Be asking others, where do you see an inadequacy in my view of the gospel? And probably the area where someone says something different and you get most angry is potentially the area where you're most out of touch with what you really should be believing. Um, and last one, seek to be entrusted and to tr trust others. Who are the people you're trusting with the gospel? And if there isn't someone, start asking God, who can I be investing in? Who I, I've lived for 60 years as a Christian. There's so much that you've poured in me. Who do I pour this into? God, show me how to entrust this to reliable men uh, that can pass this on to others. We're a sent church. So let's continue to work on recovering this and asking God to move in and through us so that we can be effective at sharing the gospel with the people around about us. Let me pray. God, you are a missional God. Your heart is broken for this world. You look at the broken, the marginalized, the mess, uh, and you're ready to jump in and get your hands dirty. It's what you did as Jesus. You jumped in and got dirty with the lepers and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the thieves on the cross. Lord, you were willing uh, to get in there and, and live life with people. Uh, you sent us your spirit, the spirit you live inside of us. We are broken, dirty, messy people, uh, being sanctified by the presence of your spirit inside of us. You, you don't just write us off, you move inside of us. Um, but God, at every moment, you are driving people towards Jesus. And you're driving this world towards your intended end. So would you be working in us? God, help us to capture the vision of sent people. Help us to see the urgency uh, of the souls around us that don't know you. Um, God, break our hearts. Where, where we're critical about the world, God, break our hearts for the world. 
And then they can be taken and sent out into the world to continue to replicate the work that you want to do. So God, do a transforming work in us. Change our hearts, stir us up, and send us out in the name of Jesus, we pray.